Welcome to Kick the Dogma. I'm your host, John Emmerich. Welcome back. Sorry for the absence. I had three potential interviews fall through, combined with a little family vacation travel. But we are back, and we're back in style with an interview about a book with an author that I've never been more excited about because I think it's the highest return on investment you can experience from either 60 minutes or $20. If you think about it, the three biggest investments you would make in your life would be one, for your own retirement, two, potentially in your own home, and three, if you have children and decide to help them in their college education. Four years of private college right now, $300,000. Two kids, $600,000. Understanding how to pay for it, why it makes sense to pay for it, and making the right decisions, avoiding mistakes is a huge return on your investment. You're not going to regret spending this time listening to Ann Garcia, author of How to Pay for College, and eventually reading her book as we barely scratched the surface. And here's my interview. Welcome, Ann. Thanks for having me. And you're a certified financial planner, and you have a financial planning practice. And it sounds like in reading your book, you started to tilt your practice towards helping families pay for college because you've seen firsthand the effects of doing it wrong. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was um, early in my career, I found a lot of our clients were coming in um we're coming in with questions about college planning and nobody really wanted to answer them. So I identified an opportunity to be the person who could answer, you know, who could answer those questions. But then I was seeing more and more young adults come in who just were struggling to get any of their adult life started because they had so many student loans and, you know, and, and frequently just the process of getting those under control was, you know, number one, taking up all of their free cash flow and, and number two, just was so overwhelming to them that they really felt like they couldn't do the things that we associate with part of being just successful and functioning adults, you know, people with student loans buy houses at lower rates, they get married at lower rates. Um, they more often than not live with their parents um, because they just don't, uh, you know, so much money is going to student loans that it's like a rent or a mortgage payment every every month. Yeah, that's prohibitive. And you shared fascinating statistics that I've not seen anywhere else about the high percentage of the folks that are in student loan trouble filling one of three buckets. Oh yeah, so so I think there's this I think there's this um, perception that that going to college and getting a bachelor's degree is is what's created this this large group of of student loan debtors who are who are behind on everything and and whatnot. And in fact, it's some pretty it's 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 some specific groups who have trouble with their student loans. You know, one is the people who enroll, take out loans and then don't graduate from college. Um, you know, and, and largely that's because not being college graduates, they don't have the financial means to pay off their, their loans. Um, the second group is people who go to for-profit colleges. You know, all those colleges you hear advertising on the radios that'll make you a, a massage therapist or a, you know, legal assistant or art schools, you know, things, things like that, that lead to degrees that are literally not worth the paper that they're, that they're printed on. These are the schools that you see in the news being sued by the Department of Education for defrauding students and 
and whatnot. And then the third group is people who go to graduate school. And I know that we often think of, um, you know, we often think of these people with big student loan balances as being doctors and lawyers who will have no problem paying off these loans. But as we've increased the degree requirements for a lot of professional tracks, you've got physical therapists, veterinarians, nurses, um, teachers, social workers, all, you know, so many professions now require a graduate degree and, um, and don't provide the salaries that are going to, that are going to pay off those degrees. And I'm guessing there's not a ready source of need-based financial aid in the graduate school world like there is undergraduate? No, there really, there really isn't. And, and schools can, you know, some, some schools do offer financial aid, um, but those are few and far between. And, um, and then they all have differing rules for how you qualify as an independent student. So for example, a student who goes directly from undergraduate to graduate school often will not be treated as an independent and assessed on their own financial strength or, or weakness um, when it comes to, to financial aid. Oftentimes a student has to spend a couple of years, you know, they have to have filed a, a minimum number of tax returns as an independent Right person to to actually qualify otherwise your parents finances get involved and that definitely negates any yeah and i think the vast majority of parents say you know we'll help with undergrad but you're on your own if you want to pursue it beyond that this world we're getting into is full of acronyms and is why this book is so helpful because you can just look at it and read it and understand it as almost as a reference Maybe you could just talk about three of them up front before we proceed, what, what they stand for and, and what, what they mean. You have the FAFSA, the CSS profile, and one that was actually new to me, despite having been through it three times, the AOTC. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so let's group them um, together. The FAFSA and the CSS profile, those are the two primary um financial aid forms that a student and family might fill out. The FAFSA is the federal form. It's the free application for federal student aid. I think it's important to remember the first F stands for free. A lot of times when you Google it, you'll come to a paid site and put all your data in and then somebody asks you for $20 to submit it. So that's a rabbit hole we're not going to go down right now. <laughs> but what the what each of these forms do, the FAFSA and the CSS profile, is they attempt to um, determine a family's ability to pay for college on a consistent set of metrics. The FAFSA looks at a slightly more limited pool of income and assets. The CSS profile looks at a little bit broader. All schools use the FAFSA because the FAFSA is the form that allocates federal aid dollars. So that is Pell Grants, that is direct student loans, that is Parent PLUS loans, that is work study. So any dollars that come from the federal government are allocated through the FAFSA by the college itself. The CSS profile is used by a pool of about 400 private colleges. And so families who attend one of those colleges will complete the CSS profile in addition to the FAFSA. I think one of the really common misperceptions about the FAFSA in particular and the CSS profile secondarily is that it's the tooth fairy. 
Um, the FAFSA does not bring you a whole bunch of money unless you're eligible for a Pell Grant. The money, by and large, the large scholarship dollars come from the schools themselves. So it's not enough to just have a low expected family contribution, which is being renamed the Student Aid Index, just to throw a couple more acronyms in there. It's really important for families when they do find that they could be eligible for need-based aid to then screen the colleges they're looking at for colleges that offer need-based aid. Similarly, if your expected family contribution from the FAFSA or CSS profile shows that you are not eligible for need-based aid, that doesn't mean that you're stuck paying $80,000 a year for college. You just need to look for colleges that offer merit scholarships. So that's the FAFSA and the CSS profile. I guess the other big thing to say about them, people tend to focus on their assets and saying, what can I do to hide my assets on the FAFSA and the CSS profile? Probably for most families, 90% of the formula is going to be based on their income, not on their assets. So, so it's your income that you really want to fiddle around with. My book has a number of strategies for the limited things you can do to impact your, um, your income on, on the FAFSA. Um, the other acronym you mentioned is the AOTC, which is the American Opportunity Tax Credit. And that is a tax credit for families who are paying for undergraduate tuition. It's worth $2,500 a year. To claim it, you have to pay $4,000 from a source other than your 529. And so because that's confusing, think of it this way. You only get one tax benefit for do per dollar, and the federal government sees 529s as being tax-benefited dollars because of the tax-free distributions. The other thing is there is an income limit on the AOTC. So your adjusted gross income needs to be below $160,000 if you're married, $80,000 if you're single, um, in order for you to claim the full the full credit. So for divorced parents, that's an opportunity to do some to do some planning where oftentimes you'll have one parent who is eligible and the other one who who isn't, and then you want that parent to claim the student on their tax return. Interesting. Okay. So you begin the book by making the case for college, somewhat maligned these days, but you make the case for college if properly financed. And it's it's such a great argument. Talk about the the why college is more important than which college, if you would. Yeah, so so I think those are, you know, those need to be two separate questions, why college and which college. And I think that as a parent, you need to start by reminding yourself why you want to do this in the first place. Who is the adult that you hope your child will be? You know, what career path are they on? What lifestyle do they have and whatnot? Across the board, college graduates do better on virtually every measure of life satisfaction than do non-college graduates. You know, they, they're more likely to get married, they're less likely to get divorced, which, I mean, who would think that has anything to do with what your, you know, with what your education is. They live healthier lives. There's less type one diabetes, type two diabetes, less heart disease among college graduates than among non-college graduates. Obviously, all of these have socioeconomic components to them, College graduates make more money than do people who don't go to college, you know, an average of something like a million dollars over over your lifetime, um, which obviously there are variables for different factors, male, female, graduate degree, non-graduate degree. But a person who has gone to college should, over the course of their lifetime, come out way ahead of someone who doesn't. And, you know, the people who don't come out ahead for going to college are the people who take out too much in, in student loans. 
you know, because those people, their, their options once they graduate are, are really constrained. So I like to tell people an appropriate amount to borrow for college is the direct student loan amount. That's the federal government's limit on, on student borrowing. That'll have you owing about, you know, somewhere between $27,000 and $30,000 when you graduate. That's about $300 a month for 10 years to get it, to, to get it paid, to get it um, paid off. But you know, college graduates have so many opportunities available to them that aren't available to other people that I think as parents, we really need to focus on, you know, what's our long game here? Who's the person that we want to see? Not which college do we want to be able to tell our friends that our kids got into? You know, my personal experience, one of my kids goes to one of those colleges and one goes to a regular college. They will be college seniors this year both of them internships at Fortune 500 companies this summer where they're making the same amount of money, you know, in pre-professional tracks in their field. So going to one of those colleges did not get one of my students ahead of the other one, (laughs) um, so to speak. It is a better fit for her academically and socially, and his college is a better fit for him academically and socially. And I think, you know, the benefit that they've both seen is they feel successful as students and they feel like they're on a path to, to, to a good future. You know, people always think if you, you know, if you want to be the top dog in the corporate world, you need to go to an Ivy League school. Actually, Penn State has produced more Fortune 500 CEOs than has Harvard or Stanford. Texas A&M, same thing. Oregon State churns out Silicon Valley CEOs like it's a degree path at their at their college. So there are there are loads and loads of great opportunities to be a successful adult that that don't run through, you know, the 40,000 slots available every year from the Ivy Leagues. Right. And I, I know there are fascinating studies out there that say if you take the same individual, that same level of uh, talent and IQ, whoever we want to put it, and they're just as good as everyone that got into Brown, but they didn't get in. And then they went to the local state school. 20 years later, they they ended up in the same place because talent outs at the end of the day and work effort and things like that. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it as a numbers game, I mean, the Ivy Leagues in Stanford will send out a total of about 40,000 acceptances every year. There are 4 million graduating seniors every year. Not all 40,000 of those acceptances are going to go to the top 1% of, you know, of students academically. So just being in the 99th percentile as a high school senior doesn't mean you're going to get into one of those schools. It also doesn't mean that you're not going to succeed in life. Rhodes Scholars every year, um, I write a blog about planning for college on my website, howtopayforcollege.com. And I always post what colleges this year's Rhodes Scholars came from. And every year, about half of them come from colleges that accept more than 50% of applicants. So fascinating. your student is going to be a success in life because of who they are, not because of what college they go to. You know, the college yeah. they choose and is, is going to help bring out those qualities in them that are going to make them successful, but that isn't going to be the difference maker for them. And now we're going to, there's a method to my madness. We're going to jump a bit to the end for a question and then come back to the beginning to help listeners understand a critical concept. Now that I've given my stump speech. (laughs) No, well, no, that's, and this is going to come back um, to what we're going to talk about, like what college you go to and and why there's another level we'll get into. Now we're going to get into the finance side. So first talk about the four buckets that colleges look at when they're assessing financial aid need, the parents' assets and income, 
and the student assets and income. Yeah, so both the FAFSA and the CSS profile look at four four big buckets of um, to to count up how they're how they think you can pay for college, um, and those are parent income, parent assets, student income, and student assets. The really big one for practically all families is the parents' income, and it is assessed. It's it's a lot like doing your taxes um, in a couple of ways. You know, one is it's it's assessed at graduated rates, so. Every incremental, you know, incremental dollars are assessed more more heavily than um, than early dollars. Um, but basically, the top assessment rate for your money, which almost every family hits at some place in the formula, is forty seven percent, which means that every additional thousand dollars of income that you bring to the picture is going to raise your expected family contribution by four hundred and seventy dollars. The, the next piece is parents' assets. And again, this is the one that people pay the most attention to, but it's very not it's very nominally impactful on in the formula. So assets, the parents' assets are, are assessed at 5.64% of their value. So that means an extra thousand dollars of assets is only going to raise your expected family contribution by $56. People freak out about savings. People say, I shouldn't save for college. I'm going to get more financial aid if I don't. In fact, if you save for college, you will get more choices than if you don't. So so, so saving, you, you shouldn't um, worry that your savings is what's going to kill you in the financial aid formula. The two pieces that tend to get overlooked are student income and student assets. Now, for for high school seniors, the income piece of it tends to be pretty negligible um, just because students get about almost $7,000 of income before it starts to count in the formula. But right now, where students are making a lot of money in summer jobs, you know, with the average wage being something like $17 an hour, student assets are assessed at 20% of their value. So a student who, you know, works 20 hours a week for the summer this summer might have $3,000 in their bank account at the end, you know, at the end of the summer. And that's going to add quite a bit to their expected family contribution. You know, it's about, if I'm doing the math in my head, right, that's about $600 more that it's going to, um, that's going to be there. I'm definitely not, inc- not discouraging students from working because make hay while the sun shines and all that. But, <laughs> um, but then, you know, that's something that families should be looking at before they file, before they file the FAFSA, getting those dollars into their 529 if they're intended for college, buying the things that your student's going to use over the course of the year, using their money before they file the FAFSA, making Roth IRA contributions for the, for their student, because if you're earning money, that's a, a great place to, to get started. So those are the four big buckets, parent income and assets, student income and assets. Parent income is the biggest one. And they're, and they're taxed at different rates, as you said. And, and this, is, this is the point I, wanna, I want people to pay attention to is that student asset, they're going to take 20% a year. Basically, they're going to take all of it over a- Over the course of four years, yeah. <laughs> right. And so one of the two biggest takeaways from this whole reading for me is- as a parent, you do not want to put money in a custodial account in their name because in the financial aid world, that is the student's money as opposed to the 529 plan, which is actually considered the parent's money and taken from the schools at two very, very different rates, correct? That is correct. And so um, so I always tell families, if your student has money 
in their account that is intended for college, it should go into their 529. That does two things. You know, one is it lowers the value of, of that money on their, um, on their FAFSA. But the second is it makes sure it's still there when they get to college. Right. Because I don't know about your teenagers, but mine. <laughs> yeah. My, my third son just came back from New York with a, a pair of collector sneakers. I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, yep. Yeah, and, and I did not know. So when you, that, so does the student put the money in the same five twenty nine plan that the parents open that's in their name? Yep. Okay, I didn't didn't even know they could do that. That's wonderful. Yeah, they can they can open their own. Either way, it's treated as the you know it's treated as the parents' asset. But there's no reason for them to have a second five twenty nine. In fact, many states don't allow you to have multiple five twenty nines with the same with the same beneficiary. The other thing is, a lot of students are eligible for their state's income tax benefit. For their contributions, like here in Oregon, you, we have a refundable tax credit as our um, 529 tax benefit. And so a student can put $150 into their 529, file an Oregon tax return and get $150 credit back from the state. And, you know, again, with wages being as high as they are, a lot of students are actually liable for state income taxes. And so they can take that deduction for the contribution to their 529, which to me is a great way to start teaching kids about how taxes, how taxes work and how tax incentives work. Yeah. Yeah. Kids are making really good money these days. And um, another change from the last time I did the financial aid uh, applications uh, is in dealing with grandparent 529s. Uh, back in the, when I first started doing this, it, it wasn't worth it because when you redeemed, it showed up as income on the on the students' uh, taxes. But that's changed. Can you explain that? Yeah. So with this, um, there's a, a part of the stimulus um, package that went into effect was this um, about 170 page section called FAFSA simplification, <laughs> which is a little bit of an oxymoron. <laughs> I read that so you don't have to. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but there are a couple of key pieces to it. One of the most impactful changes in it is changes in how the FAFSA is going to look at non-parent owned assets. So if grandparents own a 529 under the current formula, when that money comes out, it's reported as income to the student. So that was always something you needed to wait until the later years of, of college to take it out when you were past an income year that would show up in the FAFSA. That has gone, that question has gone away from the FAFSA. So that is basically free money. So students who might be eligible for a lot of financial aid, who have grandparents who are willing to hold the 529 you know, the parents can be contributing to a grandparent's 529 and keep that completely off the books, um, off the books, so to speak. Now, cautionary tale, the CSS profile, which is the form used by a lot of private schools, does ask you to list the balance of every 529 for which the student is the beneficiary. So this helps you in the FAFSA. It could help you be eligible for a Pell Grant. It could be help you be eligible for federal work study. But when it comes to need-based aid at Colleges that use the CSS profile, you will be reporting that asset. Still an asset, yeah. Mm -hmm. But much better in the aid calculation than income. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And you just mentioned it. Uh, you referred to it, and I had it written down as a question, something I'd never thought about. How, how do the Roth IRAs play into this as a potential tool? So Roth IRAs, a lot of people say you should use a Roth IRA to save for college because it doesn't count at all in, in the formula. Two issues with that. You know, number one... If you use your Roth IRA for college, you don't have it for retirement anymore, <laughs> which 
many people don't have enough for retirement already. Secondly, when you withdraw funds from a Roth IRA, you do report you do add that back to your income on the FAFSA. And so you've saved yourself an asset at 5.64%, but you've created income that's assessed at 47%. So 100% of that Roth IRA distribution is added back to your income, not just what sh- might show up on your tax return if you if you've taken any of the earnings out of out of it. Now, something that's important with income for the FAFSA is it is what's called prior prior year. Basically, when you file the FAFSA, the senior year of high school, you are using your most recently completed tax return. So if you file it this fall in 2022, you're going to be using 2021's income tax return for your FAFSA. So your income is always a little bit behind in college. And in fact, once you get to January of sophomore year of college, you are now officially, as long as you're on a four-year college path, out of <laughs> out of reporting income. For families with multiple children, keep in mind that's January of sophomore year of your youngest child's college career. Right. And that, that was a, I think that was a change that took place sometime just before our oldest son went in. And it was, it was just logical. If people hadn't filed their taxes before they were filling out the October 1 FAFSA, so they said, all right, screw it. Let's just go back a year. And But it's very important to know if you're trying to plan, and you have a whole section on that. I'll let people read about little things you can do and taking income in, but just knowing that that's the year that it starts. Yeah. And so the really important thing for families is if you want to plan for the FAFSA, that planning happens January of sophomore year of high school. (laughs) It does not happen fall of senior year. Senior year. Yeah. Okay. So now the perfect transition. Now uh, your child is in high school. Um, You're getting serious about screening for colleges Talk about the net price calculators on the college's websites. They kind of all look the same, but my experience has been if you go through them, a few of them, they ask questions very similar to what you're going to end up seeing on that school's CSS application. And candidly for us, they came in on the screws with what colleges offered uh, based on our estimates. So just fill them out honestly. You don't have to save them. You don't have to give them your real name, uh, but they work. And I don't think people even know they exist. Yeah, net price calculators are a great tool. We had the same experience. Every um, every college that we were that um, that one of my kids was accepted to, the offer came in within two thousand dollars of what the net price calculator said it would. So every college is required to have a net price calculator on their website. If you go through it and 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 fill it out, it will tell you what students like yours got in financial aid um, in in the current year. Most schools do not dramatically change their financial aid policies from year to year, so it is a pretty good proxy for what your aid package will look like. One of the really good things about net price calculators is they can only show gift aid, so they can only show grants and scholarships. They can't show student loans. They can't show work study, all of which are often included in your financial aid package. So it's a really good exercise to see what you know how schools package aid and who they give it to we looked we used net price calculators for my daughter who was applying to private schools we used net price calculators to help narrow down her list there were several schools where we filled out the net price calculator and they said we wouldn't be eligible for any financial aid we literally got estimates ranging from thirteen thousand dollars a year to eighty one thousand dollars 
a year from doing net price calculators. And that was. <laughs> that's uh, that, that uh, points you in a direction very quickly, uh, doesn't it? I mean, if- it really does. Well, and you'll also see there are big differences between schools that take the FAFSA and schools that take the CSS profile. Yeah, absolutely. Just because of the different assets that they look that that they look at and the different treatment they give to to those assets. Um, the other thing that's that's really helpful too beyond the net price calculators because net price calculators can only show you guaranteed aid, and many schools will have additional scholarships that you can apply for, um, or that are awarded. Um, to selectively to to students. So like for my daughter, she loved the idea of going to college in Boston. Um, her Boston safety school was a school where the net price calculator came in a little bit outside of our budget. She went back to the website and found that there were that there were a number of scholarships that she'd be eligible for that if she got one of them would bring the cost down to to, to put the college in in our budget. So but those are really your your big tools for figuring out what a college is going to cost. So many families go, oh, I got this on the FAFSA. That's what college is going to cost me. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's going to be a, a, a key, my big second point um, in about two questions. But first, uh, sticking with the net price calculator discussion, more acronyms. Uh, you mentioned it earlier, and, and this is where even folks like me who have been through this once or twice and might have a third you know, coming up behind, we think we know everything, things have changed. Um, explain SAI versus what it was the first time and I went through it, which was EFC. Yeah. So the expected family contribution, the EFC has been renamed or is in the process of being renamed to the student aid index. And I think this is a small but important change because when you hear expected family contribution, you expect that's what your family should contribute to college. And in fact, Colleges are under no obligation to meet your financial need. So that has been renamed the Student Aid Index to really more more accurately reflect what it does. You know, it gives schools a consistent set of data on which to evaluate all students' ability to pay. So it does not mean you're going to get this much financial aid. I think there's been an unfortunate spinoff effect of this renaming where there's a tool that has historically been called the FAFSA forecaster, where you can go in and enter your data and get an estimate of your EFC, which is helpful to determine if you're likely to be eligible for need-based aid or merit aid. That has now been renamed because it's now the student aid index. It's been now been named the student aid estimator, which sort of unravels the whole purpose of the name change because there is no nothing in there is estimating how much student aid you're going to get it's estimating what your student aid index is going to is going to be right and honestly if they stopped doing it as a dollar value and just like made it 1 through 20 it would be an index it would then it would be an index and it would you know avoid all that confusion and okay so if you're a 7 at this school you're likely to get this <laughs> right and we're going to get to merit money or those kinds of scholarships because that's the other huge piece of this puzzle. Uh, but one more big one on aid, because I think this is the second biggest learning that was shocking for us. And it's uh, so critical. So your, your students in, in high school, you're looking at schools, ignoring geographical preferences and what major and school size and all that when they're choosing schools. Now, we're really talking in this uh, instance about a return on investment calculation. So here, here's what was the craziest learning for us going through it the first time six or seven years ago. I'm, I'm going to be 55 by the time this airs. I went to college in the 80s. Back then, the top 10 you know, ranked schools by academic ranking or, or however reputation, they were them also generally the most expensive schools. 
Schools 11 through 20 cost a little less, again, in that ranking. And we're just talking about private colleges, not public yet. And then schools 21 through 30 or 40 or 50 cost even less. And again, we're just talking private colleges, not public. Today, with a few notable exceptions, that headline number that you see on the website, the total cost number before aid, is almost the same for these top 40 private colleges. However, the net is very, very different because... Those top-ranked schools have the biggest endowments and the ability to give more need-based aid. So the crazy thing, and, and this is we're going to talk about your twins. It's such a it's such a perfect vehicle for this book. What what you ended up doing uh, as a family, but your child could go cheaper to Princeton or Vanderbilt than they could Wake Forest or Lehigh or Bucknell or Northwestern, mm-hmm. and that's before the potential for merit money, which I know they don't get at the Ivies. But I'm really seeing this barbell develop as a, uh, where either you get into which your daughter did, University of Chicago, with great access to, to aid and merit money, or you, you're, you're looking at the, the state schools. Uh, in the middle, it, you're, you have to be able to almost write that check. And I know the world isn't that absolute, but your son and daughter, again, are almost perfect examples. Do you, do you see it that way? Yeah. So, so I would say one of, the, one of the ways that the top schools can be so exclusive is their yield on enrollment. And so yield is the percentage of accepted students that actually enroll in the college. At the top schools, you know, the Ivy Leagues and Stanford and whatnot, their yield is over 80%. So 80% of acceptances will enroll. So that means if you're trying to fill a class of 2000 students, you only need to admit about 2,500. So that helps them to be very, very exclusive by making sure that everyone who gets in is going to go there. (laughs) And part of the way they do that is reputation, of course. But another part of the way is by having financial packages, largely funded by their endowments, that make it more compelling for students to to attend there than, than anywhere else. So if you look at, for example, a Stanford, if your income is below a certain level, you go there for free. If it's, you know, one tier up, you go there tuition free. It's nothing about FAFSA and CSS profile or anything like that. It's just, we want you to come here. We don't want you to say, to say no to us. You know, if your yield is a more typical public school, 25%, that means you need to admit four students for every slot that you, that you hope to fill. So kind of the way the way that we found pricing works is the top schools are going to give you the best offers. The next tier down are kind of the most expensive. And interestingly, we found there's so there's Ivy League accept, uh, acceptance day when all of the Ivies send out their acceptance notices, send out being you get an email saying click here to find out if you open it. I was I kept expecting the mail to come you know, like it did for us. The next tier down of schools Basically, all of them have their acceptance day the next day because they know you're not going to go there while you're waiting to hear. Nobody's going to accept their offer until they've heard from the Ivies anyway. Fascinating. So, but, you know, as you go down the tier of colleges, I think, you know, I think one of the unfortunate things in our system is that we've let the highly selective or highly rejective, as some people call them, schools, drive the narrative of how college admissions work. And in fact, the vast majority of colleges are actively trying to enroll and admit 
students. You know, every year there's a list published on, you know, on May 1st of colleges who haven't filled their enrollment for the year. And there are some great colleges on that list. You know, Arizona State is often on that list. So these are schools, you know, all, all of the big schools are on it, but lately more and more of the private schools are, are on it because they haven't, you know, they haven't fully filled their, their freshman class and they, they still have spots to fill. Most colleges are trying to enroll more students and their biggest marketing vehicle is money. And so if you're willing to look for the schools where your student is a top performer academically, you're going to have a lot more choices and a lot more dollars available to you. So my son, you know, my daughter, we called her a D1 mathlete when she was in in high school. Her twin brother was a normal kid. (laughs) He was a normal, smart kid. And, you know, he didn't want to go to a top college. He wanted to go to a big college. He wanted to have football games and stuff like that. And, you know, he found a college that offered a great merit scholarship for someone like him. He's going out of state, having a great time, and we're paying the same as it would have cost him to stay in state at University of Oregon. And there, there is in the West, I don't think it's this reciprocal arrangement between mm-hmm. about seven states, where if you're in any one of those states, you, you get the uh, in-state tuition. And that, that's pretty pretty cool. I don't think, is Arizona not part yeah, of that? So, so different schools are part of it. And actually there is a, a, there, there are different arrangements like that in pretty much every region of the, of the, the country. country. Okay. Um, so in the West, yeah, we have WUI, which is the Western undergraduate exchange. And that is, um, it lets, it lets you attend a college in one of those seven States. Is it seven or 13 states for 150% of in-state tuition? Not all schools participate in that. So typically the flagship schools aren't in there. Um, oh, okay. you know, University of Washington, the UC system. Um, but other than the UC system, they all offer merit scholarships to out-of-state students. You know, these are big colleges that are trying to enroll students. And not only they're trying to enroll students, but they're trying to move up in the US News and World Report rankings. And their best tool for doing that is admitting students with better grades and test scores. And that is, uh, so now let's jump into that merit money category. This is, to me, it's it's legwork because it's so different from Mm -hmm. school to school because they're it's not out of the endowment, right? A lot of them are individually underwritten. So two two topics. One is when you are applying to an out-of-state state school, if you would be considered upper decile for their kind of uh, academic profile, that's where the merit money we received always seemed to magically, basically equate to giving you in-state tuition. Yeah, that was. Does that sound right? Yeah, pretty much. And and some are even more. Um, some are even more generous than than that. The nice thing with the state schools is they typically publish on their website what their scholarships are and what GPA and test scores get them there. Now, a big learning for my family, <laughs> and probably for others is how they calculate GPA. You know, we're always told by our high schools, you know, better, faster, stronger, take the AP classes, take the IB classes. The weighted GPA. The weighted GPA. Well, a lot of scholarships are awarded on unweighted GPA. And in fact, for my son, had we not pushed him into classes that were too hard for him, or more work than he was willing to do, he would have been eligible for another $12,000 a year of merit scholarships because his school awarded scholarships on the basis of unweighted GPA. So 
there are, you know, there are schools where an IB diploma or every AP class you can take are just table stakes in the admissions game. If you're not applying to those schools, I strongly encourage you to look for the topics where your student is sufficiently interested and passionate about the topic where they're going to put in the work and will earn the same grade as they would in an unweighted class. What the, what the public schools here in, in our district in Colorado sell uh, in regards to the AP is, and they're, they're, all, they're exclusively focused on getting you into the, the, the state school, is the AP credit wipes out a credit that you have to pay for in college. So it's, mm-hmm. it's worth money uh, as opposed to a private college where the tuition is what it is every semester. Um, you're not graduating early no matter how many AP credits you, you get. Yeah, I mean, my daughter did a full IB course load all through high school and still had to take placement tests. <laughs> really? <laughs> at her college. But, you know, their philosophy is we're very generous with financial aid because we want college to be a four-year experience. Is there a strategy? We talked about the the top 20 and then the state schools and this barbell and those schools in the middle. Is there a shorthand way that uh, you, a parent can, and a student can look at a school, kind of like I use that example going out of state state, where you say, well, I would be a rock star academically in their profile. You know, their, their range of ACTs is 28 to 30, and I got a 34. Is that a shorthand way for figuring out your probability of, of getting merit from a school that actually has it to offer? Yeah, I think, you know, a really good way to, um, to, to find schools that offer merit is look where students from your high school are going because colleges know the high schools that students come from. They know kind of what students are like. And so if you see, you know, gosh, it seems like a lot of kids from our high school go to Grinnell. Maybe that's because Grinnell gives a lot of financial aid to students, um, to students like yours. It is unfortunately a a highly manual process to find the colleges that will that will give your student aid because colleges are looking for different things. You know, a, a, an admissions counselor I talk with a lot. She calls. She says it's like putting together a football team, right? You don't need seven punters or putting together an orchestra. You can't have all flute players. You you know you need a little a little of everything. And so oftentimes, a college recognizes you know we need such and such type of student. Let's target some money at them. You know, a great example is smaller colleges love to be able to say they have students from all 50 states. Right. If you are from a small state. South Dakota and you hit the lottery. (laughs) (laughs) It's entirely possible. You know, if you're a student in Oregon and you're applying to a college in Tennessee, that you could be the only student from Oregon applying to that, that college. Right. And they're going to want you to come. Yeah. One specific question, it has to do with the topic of when you get scholarships and you're on need, how much the university will reduce your need-based aid. You know, we they, again, at the local high school, they have this, it's very antiquated, three-ring binder of all the local scholarships from Rotary to whatever, you know, the Knights yep. of Columbus, and they're $500,000. And we, you know, the school that they all went to, I was pretty confident they were going to lose their need-based aid dollar for dollar. But then you also have the situation where the school, you could get a combination as your kid did uh, or kids, uh, a combination of need-based aid and merit money. Just can you clarify uh, the value of 
going after merit scholarships when you're already getting uh, need-based financial aid? Yeah, so so these are um, what's called outside scholarships. So so there's there's three big pools of financial aid. There's need-based aid offered by the college. There's merit aid offered by the college. And then there are outside scholarships, which are scholarships that are given by entities that are unaffiliated with, with your college. So if you are a student who receives need-based aid and you get an outside scholarship, that will reduce your need-based aid by 50 cents on the dollar. The one untouchable component of need-based aid is a Pell Grant. So if you have a Pell Grant, your Pell Grant will never be re- reduced by outside scholarships. But, but any other scholarship like that is going to cost you 50 cents on the dollar of your need-based aid. Now, there's a big caveat to that, which is that it's up to the school what portion of your need-based aid package they reduce. So for a student who has a grant, work-study, and a student loan, they could reduce the work-study or the student loan, which is okay. far less costly than having the grant reduced. So like in my daughter's case, she has an outside scholarship um, she received a need-based grant, um, and she had work-study at her college. And here's where it gets confusing. One year, they reduced her grant. <laughs> one year, they took away her work-study. And one year, the check from the outside scholarship got there so late, they didn't know what to do. <laughs> they didn't change anything <laughs> for her fall for her fall tuition and adjusted it all after the fact. So there's a lot that can be, you know, there's a lot of leeway that can be done, but you know, I, I generally in, encourage students who have need-based aid and it's the summer after senior year and they're trying to collect money, focus on the big dollar scholarships because the amount of application work that goes into getting $500, which is really only $250, just get a job and earn $250. 100%. It, that's a, a great way to look at the investment in time. Uh, you could just, you could turn it into a full-time job trying to collect $500. Uh, scholarships. Yeah. And I would say too, you know, when it comes to finding outside scholarships, because the dollars can add up pretty well, like my daughter's, my daughter's scholarship is $5,000 a year, plus $1,000 for technology. Plus she gets a mentor, you know, a, a career mentor who found her a fabulous internship that she's been, that she's been doing it. She found that scholarship because her high school computer science teacher recommended that she applied to it. You know, there are big websites out there, FastWeb, Scholarly, you know, a million others that aggregate outside scholarships. And so you can go in there and apply for a million of them at a time. That binder in your high school guidance counselor's office is, should be your, your starting point because- Those are all the local scholarships that have much smaller applicant pools. So you're much more likely to actually get those scholarships. Yeah, that's actually the, one of the main points from the guidance counselor is she, she says you wouldn't believe how many of these, you know, no one applies for, you know, mm-hmm. so it could be it could be free money. OK, so now we've we've done the math. We filled out the worksheets that are in the book and we, we determine we're going to have to borrow some money. What does our decision tree look like there, the different kinds of loans? Uh, the direct loans don't accrue interest while in college, even with a small origination fee. Those seem to me like a powerful financial planning tool, especially if your other option is to sell appreciated assets and taxable accounts and realize gains and have that show up in your taxable income on your taxes. But I'll let you explain a little bit about the uh, the, the borrowings market. 
Yeah, so so there are um, so there are two big pools of loans: federal loans and private loans. I firmly believe that your starting and stopping point for borrowing for college should be the federal direct student loan program, and so those are the loans that students can take out from the federal government. They have tons and tons of borrower protections. They can be partially subsidized, which is what you were referring to, where no interest accrues while you're in college. Of course, right now, no interest accrues on any federal education right. loan, as has been the case for a couple of years, and who knows when that's gonna when that's gonna start up again. Students can borrow $5,500 their first year, $6,500 their second year, $7,500 the last two years. That ends up being about you know $27,000 to $30,000, depending on interest accruing on, on the loan. That is a super reasonable amount to borrow for, for every year. If you need to borrow beyond that, there are, there are um, a couple of options. Well, the other great thing about the direct student loan is that is the one loan that a student can take out in their own name without a cosigner. So the next set of loans is Parent PLUS loans. Those are also from the federal government. So like student loans, they've been on hold, no interest accruing, et cetera, et cetera, for, um, for the past couple of years. They have higher interest rates than the direct student loans because all the loans have a fixed markup from, um, from the treasury and, and the markup for the parent loan is, is higher than for a student loan, higher origination fees. Nonetheless, still have all the federal borrower protections. And in fact, parents who are employed in public service or nonprofit work can also be eligible for public service loan forgiveness if they, um, if they take out those loans. The final big pool of loans are private loans, and those are offered by lots and lots of different lenders all over the place. People are happy to loan you that money. By and large, a student taking out private loans will be required to have a parent co-sign that loan. As co-signer, you are equally responsible for that loan balance with, with your, your student. One of the challenges about comparing private to um, federal is that the terms can be so different. All of the federal loans have fixed interest rates for the lifetime of the loan. They have all the federal borrower protections, you know, income-based repayment, graduated repayment, potentially subsidized with no interest accruing during school, forbearance options, you, you name it, to keep you on track with those loans. Private loans don't have any of that, and oftentimes they can be variable rate loans where they're quoting a low teaser rate, or they'll quote a longer repayment term to tell you that the monthly payment is going to be less over the course of your repayment period. It's only less because you're going to pay it for more years. <laughs> right. So, so, so really you should be trying to find colleges that you can afford with a maximum of the federal direct student loan as, as you're borrowing. Random follow-up question to that. A, a student takes out the direct student loans. They go out to work for two years or three years. They decide they're going to go get a, a master's degree. Do they get any deferment or relief on that first loan while they're in graduate school? Yeah. So if you enroll in graduate school, your loan payments are automatically suspended. Now, the challenge is that interest keeps accruing on those loans. And it's not just we had a we had an incident where a client was doing night school and she was working full time. And after a few months, she's like, there's more money in my bank account than there should be. And she realized they had put her undergraduate loans on hold. on hold with interest accruing. So she's like, no, 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 I want to keep paying. And it was a bit of a process to get the payments um, going again, going again. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if you've taken out student loans for undergraduate, I strongly encourage you to get them paid off before you go to grad school, because that $27,000 balance might now be $35,000 plus any money you've borrowed for grad school. 100%. Small part of the discussion, but like you having a club soccer player, we have a club lacrosse, lacrosse player, and I watch parents and I listen to what they're saying. And uh, my personal bias is they're, they're thinking about it all wrong. So the athletics discussion, the probability of getting a full athletic scholarship is pretty low. Uh, partial scholarships are available. And I know the University of Denver lacrosse team, I'm guessing a third of them get nothing. It seems to me what, what we're thinking about doing, and we don't give unsolicited advice, but if they ask is, hey, if, if your player is that good, Use that to get into maybe a reach school where, and, and you know, if you're going to get need-based aid anyway, and it's a better school, whether it's the Ivies or the Little Ivies, like, you know, Tufts or Williams or, or those folks, a high caliber division three school, you'll end up doing just as well on average, uh, uh, probability wise, than if you, you know, went all in on trying to get a division one scholarship. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I, it depends so much on so much on the student and what their goals are, both academically and within their sport. But playing a D one sport is a full time job, and doesn't come with a paycheck. You know, there's a small number of sports that do offer full rides to all rostered students. Those are what's called headcount sports, and so that's football, basketball, for men. And then um, basketball, tennis, gymnastics, and maybe one other for um, for women. So if you play, play those volleyball, if you play one of those sports at the D1 level, you're going to get a full scholarship. Every other sport, D1 or D2, is what's called an equivalency sport, and that's what you're saying. People, the coach has a certain number of scholarships that it's at their discretion to divvy up among all the players, and that can result in some low to no dollars for everyone. Now, I did read somewhere recently that there's a proposal to change all D1 sports to headcount sports so everyone would get a full scholarship. That would cost something like a billion dollars a year to all the colleges. So that's not, say that's not necessarily a slam dunk. But yeah, about 1% of high school students, of high school student athletes will get a full scholarship to, to college. Fortunately for athletes, there are so many different choices about where, where they can play. And so you do see a lot of, you know, a lot of kids going to the D3 schools where they might get a merit scholarship or need-based scholarship rather than an athletic scholarship. And frankly, there are so many more dollars available for academic scholarships than for athletic scholarships, which is sort of mind-blowing to, uh, to a lot of families. Yeah, you shared that those numbers in the book. They're, they're stunning to look at when you think about it. Yeah, because we always hear about sports scholarships, but yeah, it's mathletes are crushing it over athletes <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to scholarships. And it's something you alluded to. We got to know a few athletes at the university where there are older boys go that happens to be a division one school. And my God, they are up at four in the morning for weight training. They go to school all day, then they have team practice from four to six thirty and it's all year round, unlike a Division three program that, that I went to. You know, we, we started in, in middle of August and Thanksgiving we were done. And they said, you know, hope you do this training in the off season. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, 
and I took a, I was able to take a heavier academic load in the off season, and it was a, a a great way to go. Okay, so now we've we've narrowed down our list. We've looked at schools that we really want to go to. Uh, it fits a lot of things personally. It also we think we're going to get the either the financial based need we want or the merit scholarships. Explain demonstrated interest and how relevant that is to actually getting into that school that now is is your dream for for all the reasons we've talked about. Yeah. So demonstrated interest is not a factor at every college, but it is at many. And so demonstrated interest is just the college having some indication for you prior to from you prior to receiving your application that you might be interested in going there. It doesn't take much to demonstrate interest. <laughs> um, you know, oftentimes students, once they've taken the SAT or the PSAT or the ACT, will start getting bombarded with email from, um, from colleges. I encourage students, if it's a school that you're interested in, they always offer something, you know, reply to us and get blah, blah, blah. Reply to them and get blah, 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 because that puts you in their database. Going back to my original, to my earlier point about yield on yield on admissions, you know, colleges want to offer admission to students they think will accept. And if you have demonstrated interest, you have demonstrated that you are maybe more likely to accept than a student who has not has not done so. So if you're visiting a college, do their tour. Don't just go walk around the campus. If you are in, you know, follow them on social media, sign up for a virtual tour. There are so many ways to demonstrate interest that don't involve getting on a plane. You know, you can do a virtual tour. You can ask to be put in touch with faculty in the area that you're that you're interested in. Um, you can just sign up on their website, follow them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just do something that puts your name in their pool of people that they've that they've known about. Among schools where demonstrated interest is important, it has been shown that students are accepted at higher rates if they've demonstrated interest and they get larger financial aid packages if they've demonstrated interest. So important. Thank you for that. And I don't want to talk about everything. I want uh, people to uh, read the book. Uh, but is there anything else, Anne, that I should have asked you uh, that listeners, uh, you'd want them to know in advance of reading the book just to entice them a little further? So, I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. I don't want to put people to sleep. No, point. no, it's just been great. Um, I, you know, I think the really important thing that I want parents to understand is you have a lot more choices than you probably think you do when it comes to college. And the way that you get more choices is you start earlier. So the earlier you start thinking about and planning for colleges, the more choices your student will have because you have more opportunity to save, you have more opportunity to have good conversations with them about what you and they want out of the college experience, and you have more opportunities to research and plan for how it all works so that you get the most scholarship dollars that are available to you. That was perfect. And Garcia, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it and best of luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.